Welcome to Count Me In with Elle Indiana. Today we feature a vibrant conversation with Moon Duchin, Professor of Mathematics at Tufts University, where she oversees the Metric Geometry and Gerrymandering Group, which focuses their research on data science interventions for civil rights. Moon earned her undergraduate degrees in Mathematics and Women's Studies from Harvard University and her Master's and PhD in Mathematics from the University of Chicago. She was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2018, and she has been a Fellow of the American Mathematical Society since 2017. In this conversation, you will hear about Moon's strategy to build the kind of community you want to be in, about how outreach energizes her, about her skill at working just about anywhere, and about how many of her favorite places in the world serve coffee. So please join us as we talk with Moon. Hi, Moon. Hi, Moon. Hello, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, I hope you can hear me all right. I'm in a mm-hmm. dorm in Maine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yep. Where? laughs> we hear you just fine. Okay, what are great. we uh, taking you away from? What were you doing this morning? Well, I'm at Canada USA Math Camp, so I'm teaching for high school kids. Mm-hmm. What are you teaching? Uh, my main class is called uh, Measuring Fairness, and it's about how I try to develop metrics for democracy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I'm also giving a colloquium on notebook groups. Mm, very nice. Great. What kind of metrics do you use to measure democracy? I'm just curious. That yeah. sounds like an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah. So mostly I'm using redistricting as the kind of source of examples, but some of it goes beyond that. Um, but when you look at a districting plan, you might ask if it's fair. And there's various ways people have tried to measure that from mm-hmm. metrics about like how funny looking the districts are to kind of symmetry metrics that look at, you know, if you're dealing with a party system, are the two parties treated symmetrically? Um, so there's all kinds of things out there that are scores and I'm teaching a class to try to encourage these kids to think about like, what is a score? <laughs> what does it measure? What units is it in? Um, you know, if you try to set an ideal and your ideal is unachievable, can it still be right? <laughs> we're trying to, I think uh, we're trying to take it in a kind of philosophical <laughs> I love these kind of conversations. I taught a course on mathematics and democracy last fall using a lot of your material and and my students watched videos of you. But just having these conversations about what is fair and how can math play a role in it, it's really fun. Yeah, it's definitely fun to teach. But I I find that when I asked, you know, these are like really super off the charge, smart high school kids. When I asked them a math question, they answer it like that. But when I ask them like a fairness question, <laughs> you can sort of watch the gears turning a little bit more mm-hmm. so, to, to sort of switch modes too. <laughs> I had a, um, we used, well, we used to use James Stewart's calculus book and he has a fantastic problem in when you're first learning limits from the left and the right about how a drug stays in your bloodstream. And I love the problem because it's a, really great application problem when you're just learning a limit. But when you then add an ethical question, just a basic ethics question of what does this mean? Yeah. Then it becomes just what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we like to start off by asking you to tell us about Little Moon 
up through <laughs> high school. And you can talk about interactions you have with math, but we're really curious about where you started life and and all that. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about my backstory. So I was born in New York City, um, in Greenwich Village. Uh, my folks were living in the city for a while around that time, and then we moved to the suburbs. So I grew up in the New Jersey. Um, my parents are, are both pretty STEM-y people. Uh, my mom's got a background in, well, she did her undergrad in psychology and then a PhD in computer science in the 70s. Wow. And then, yeah, and then became an economist. Um, and so by the time I was born, she was a, a research economist at NYU. That's why we were always sort of close to that area. Um, and my dad had studied physics in school and then kind of followed my mom to the U.S. My dad's French um, and we met in Paris, but he followed her to the U.S. and left academia and ended up doing kind of modeling jobs in the paper industry. Um, so, so they were both pretty kind of mathy. They thought a lot about models. Um, but in both cases, the like, wider family is is not Matthew. <laughs> uh, we're a family of, of artists, um, teachers, mostly like you know, English teachers. <laughs> um, and my, my sister is, a, is an artist. She's a painter. So she's kind of, yeah, I stuck with the, the weird uh, speed. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I was really exposed to fun math and interested in math from a pretty young age. And I, I kind of I can remember wanting to be an astronaut. I can remember wanting to be president. And then like by age seven, it was mathematician. And I've kind of stuck with that ever since. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> um, and yeah, I feel like not every kid learns that like a mathematician is a thing you can be. <laughs> um, much later in, in college, I you know, I have this kind of weird name and I, I ran into someone at the library when I was checking out some books who recognized my name and said, wait a second, weren't you that kid from New Jersey who tortured us with math, tortured us with math games at your like <laughs> second grade birthday party? And I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds about right. Um, but yeah, so um, I think that was really good for me going into college. I was really curious, but math was, you know, I was an undergrad at Harvard in the 90s where the, I found the atmosphere really rough. Um, and I had this pretty well-formed self-image as a mathematician that like did a lot of work to insulate me from the like, you know, ego shocks of, <laughs> of, of that atmosphere and kind of kept me with it when it might've been discouraging otherwise. So I think, yeah, I think that served me well, that kind of like ideation where I sort of already thought of myself as a mathematician by, by that age. What, what sort of atmosphere did you find rough? Tell us more about that. Well, the time, things have shifted a little since then, but at the time, like all the, the, first of all, all the like Olympiad kids were going there. Um, (laughs) Not only that, but also, you know, like people that I was in school with, um, have gone on to, you know, get Fields medals. Manjul Bhargava <laughs> was my TA for Galois theory, for example. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's just like, it, it felt impossible to get the attention of the faculty there unless you were already a fully formed mathematician, which I was not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So, so yeah, so that was, that was pretty discouraging. Definitely. You know, I think that department has changed a lot over time, but there's a, there was a long period where it, it just felt like, um, the, the sense of belonging wasn't very well democratized. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I think that was rough and like getting, getting positive feedback from the professors was, was, was hard to come by. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, actually one of the ways that I dealt with that was by, uh, having a double major started so in what was then women's studies. I'm not sure, uh, degrees of that name still exist. They're usually gender <laughs> studies now or something broader. Uh -huh. but, uh -huh. Yeah. So I have a math and women's studies degree and I ended up kind of writing theses on both sides. Um, my, my women's studies thesis was trying to kind of, I got interested in the, the field called feminist science studies, which is kind of looking at science through a lens of people and their social formations and trying to figure out, you know, who gets authority and how do we build consensus and how do we decide what's right. And so I, uh, a kind of feminist science studies look at math because I couldn't find any that had been written yet. <laughs> people were looking at biology, people were looking at physics, but I thought it'd be fun to look at math. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my, that was my thesis on the women's studies side. And then I did a, you know, kind of conventional spectral graph theory thesis on the math side. <laughs> Tell us more about the women's studies. How has that yeah. affected or how have you used that uh, since graduating? Well, you know, the way I just described it, it so-called feminist science studies, that's something I've really brought with me through my career. Um, so when I was a graduate student at UChicago, um, I actually was closely involved with the Center for Gender Studies there. I taught gender studies while I was a math grad student, um, which was super fun. And um, since then, I've maintained this interest in what's sometimes called STS, Science and Technology Studies or Science, Technology and Society, and actually founded um, with some colleagues at Tufts, I founded a, a program, a major in, in STS. So, um, so it's definitely something I've brought with me um, when I've been working on math and democracy topics. That's been an absolute treat because it's a it's a way to bring the math lens and the STS lens together on the same problem, which surprised me. I didn't expect uh, to, you know, I wrote two theses in an undergrad and I sort of expected these interests to stay pretty separate. So mm -hmm. it's, been a, it's been a real pleasure of this like recent phase of my career to get to to bring these kind of critical interests. How does science work? How do we convince people of things? How do we decide what's right? Mm -hmm. How do we decide what's fair? <laughs> Putting that together with kind of a math toolkit feels really good. Right. Oh, that's great. And, and I think we're going to dig a little deeper into that in a minute. But let me take you back for a second and ask you about your earlier years and who helped you along your way? Who do you say, you know, like, at this critical juncture in your childhood or development, you know, there was this person who really helped. Well, um, you know, a person who's just been really important in forming my ideas about uh, careers and possibilities is my mom. Mm. Talked about her a little bit, um, but she's just, she's crossed boundaries over and over again in her career. Uh, and she's like built new ideas and she's kind of, if she encounters an institution that doesn't work quite the way she thinks it should, she thinks about making a new one. <laughs> and so, you know, that I just, I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for how she envisions possibility. 
Um, you know, also there were teachers along the way who were really good at, you know, I have this, I have this thing I like to say, which is we talk a lot about the climate of math and other fields. A phrase that I hear people say a lot is uh, microaggression. Mm-hmm. I think microaggression is a really important concept for people to, to latch on to because um, understanding all the little ways that people are made to, to feel like they don't belong, that really does help you understand what makes an environment welcoming or not welcoming. But I like to think about the flip side of that, which is like microaffirmations, I call them, which is just small comments, not necessarily huge gestures, but small comments and small gestures make people say, wait a second, this might be a thing I can do. Mm-hmm. So I, I can think of um, so, uh, a teacher I had in like a summer program in the middle of high school, maybe sophomore year, who we were working, it was a probability class and she was watching me solve probability problems and she was like, you have got to keep doing this. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, that was, that was a big deal at that age. I mean, I already had this, like I said, I had the sense of myself as a math person. Um, but, but to have someone be like, no, wait, stop. Like, this is something you need to do. You know, that was, that actually caused some like course shifts and, and changed some decisions for the second half of high school. So that's an example. And I absolutely try to pay that forward in, in my mm-hmm. teaching practice. I, like to when I'm teaching, I like to stop and sit down with myself in the middle of the semester and say, hey, okay, I've got these impressions of these kids based on their questions, based on how I interact with them. Who are some of them that are really impressing me, but they might not have the classroom success Mm -hmm. to know how exciting it is to talk to them? And then I try to make little comments, not not a big embarrassing deal, but just little comments like, hey, I don't know if you always get great scores and grades, but man, are you smart and fun to talk to? <laughs> and I, I've definitely had students come back to me like at the end of the semester or even after graduating and say, you know, that little comment really changed my decisions for the next couple semesters. I th- I, I'm a big believer. Mm-hmm. That's great. We interviewed Lloyd Douglas last year and he talked about his multivariate teacher, his multivariate professor, I think it was in college who did something very similar to what you're describing, just a small little comment when she gave us test back. Um, one question we like to ask, the normal way we ask it is describe a challenge and how you faced it. However, you just mentioned, um, you don't have to talk about Harvard in the 90s. But <laughs> if you did talk about Harvard in the 90s, my question would be, you must have taken your own measure in some way. So, I really want to focus on that, how you faced it. It doesn't have to be Harvard in the 90s, but I really want to hear more about that. Yeah. I'm at a math camp for high school kids right now. And one of the things, one of the events that we put on this week is a session on imposter syndrome or imposter, what's the other word people use? Uh, Phenomenon. (laughs) You know, the thing where everyone's afraid they'll be exposed as a fraud all the time. Um, And we we were talking about that and a lot of the way the event was framed involved the staff of camp, which ranges from college kids up to professional mathematicians, just talking about episodes where they had had um, a challenge to identity and, and sense of belonging in the field that was serious enough to make them think about leaving. Um, and so I, I was thinking about my own, but I was also thinking about everybody else's. Um, and I think one of the strategies that we talked about at this event for 
navigating that and one that I think is really important is just like conscious risk taking. So part of the challenge of do I belong? Am I good enough? Is what, what, what this fear of exposure, a lot of people struggle to ask questions in math talks, right? Because you always worry that it's a thing you should have known that you will expose yourself for not knowing the thing you're supposed to know. And that will be horribly embarrassing. And so I told the story at this event of, you know, and in, in, when I started in grad school, I was really already training myself to ask questions and try not to worry about saying stupid. So in this one class, in my differential topology class, my first year of grad school, I asked like a certifiably stupid question. <laughs> like, so, and the professor who was a sweetheart didn't say what a dumb question, but just looked at me with this kind quizzical look and answered in this really deadpan way and like snickers went around the room kind of thing, you know, classic. Um, and like, you know, I took a deep breath and like didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that um, part of the, this, there's, there's all this fear that, that comes with being in a field that has such like a meritocracy vision behind the way we relate to each other and behind our structures here. And so one way to get over that fear is just to get right through it, like to really embarrass yourself once or twice and be like, all right, you know, that was okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's one of my thoughts about uh, how, to, how to get past certain like structural challenges. Mm -hmm. You know, to that also I'll add, these days I do a bunch of um, expert work in legal cases. So in the last year I've been like testifying in court. And the way that goes often is before you testify, there's this thing called a deposition where you sit do a long recorded interview that gets transcribed exactly, whose entire point is to make you sound dumb, unqualified, you know, whose entire point is to trip you up. And you sit there and sort of calmly defend yourself and your opinions for like seven hours. Um, it is an excellent exercise <laughs> um, in kind of standing your ground and, and mm -hmm. you know, like, and explaining your reasoning. It's, it's, a, it's, been, it's been interesting. I almost recommend it to others. <laughs> so I want to just ask a PS on that. We have a lot of students who listen to our podcast, and you just talked about being a mathematician and testifying in court, and that's going to be something new, I think. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How do you get those opportunities? I mean, only say what you're permitted to say, but that's a, right. that's a whole new way to use uh, mathematics, your mathematics training. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. So what, what happened back in 2016-17 is that I got interested in um, kind of interventions in particular that, that uh, mathematicians could help with. And, and partly this is because one of my best friends from high school and college um, was at the time president of a major civil rights organization. And um, I was teaching a social choice class at Tufts in 2016, uh, which was just a basic voting theory class, mostly for math phobes actually, is sort of how that course had been run. And um, Kristen Clark, this good friend of mine, she actually, I somehow got her to come and visit my class. She was, the students totally not impressed, <laughs> you know, you know how students are looking at their watches and all. Um, but one of the things Kristen said in that class visit that made a huge impression was like, hey, all you really smart people who think about this stuff, you are needed because 
our voting rights experts are retiring in droves and the litigation groups are really going to need a new generation of experts. So I, I heard that and I got excited and thought like, wow, what if mathematicians could act these like quantitative skills, these reasoning skills and like help in voting rights litigation? That sounds pretty exciting. So um, I teamed up with some friends, actually also some friends that uh, work at this math camp that I'm at. Um, and we, we started just a little collective. Um, so Mira Bernstein and Ari Nia were the original collaborators. So my, my vision was that maybe I would get 30 mathematicians together for a little skill sharing workshop. They'd learn what it would take to be an expert for these cases. Maybe not all 30 would do it, but you know, five or 10 would do it. And lo and behold, there'd be a new crop of experts. Um, but what happened instead was that the workshop went viral, um, had to be held in a rented movie theater, you know, had ended up with spinoffs around the country, the Farville near Tufts. And then we ended up going to Madison and Durham and Austin and San Francisco. And there was just, just incredible interest and demand. And it actually, I found it very moving um, because to me, one of the things that it said was that mathematicians you know, there's this kind of um, ivory tower type of ideology among mathematicians that says like pure math is the best math, you know, the, the sort of mathematicians apology mindset that says we don't, we don't want to be in the real world. That's what's so great about what we do. What, what I found really moving about workshops was that there's obviously a huge body of mathematicians who thought how great it would be to be uh, useful in the world um, in the problems that they mm -hmm. care about. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so just to say a little bit more about that, the, the, we ended up having dozens of people go through the trainings, um, and some have really stayed with it. Mm -hmm. So, um, Jen Cleland is a, um, geometer and analyst at University of Colorado, and she's been doing a bunch of expert work. Um, Ari Stern at Wash U, um, in, in Philadelphia, um, and Daryl DeFord, uh, who was a postdoc with my group and is now an assistant professor at Washington State. Um, and I'm probably forgetting more that have kind of been through the trainings and then gone on to do this expert work. So, you know, we, we've had some success, definitely. But what I hadn't appreciated at first is just how consuming it is to do this kind of expert work. Mm -hmm. um, it's just it. I, I, it really isn't so compatible with, say, being on the tenure track, right? <laughs> it's hard to figure out. And I know that's probably something that we'll end up talking about more, but the question of balance is a really difficult one when you want to do this kind of work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a deposition is like you said, I had one last week that started at 10 a.m. and went till 6 p.m. <laughs> and like when you have to write a whole bunch of reports. I think I wrote four or five for the North Carolina congressional and legislative district litigation this year. And then I flew there and testified and it's just, it's a, it's a huge commitment. So it's, it's not the kind of thing that's really, you know, in your spare time, but if, if you um, have the space in your career or are at an institution that will help support you, it's just incredibly rewarding. Mm -hmm. How is Tufts at uh, uh, understanding what you do and accepting uh, that? Um, well, I would say my department hasn't always quite understood. <laughs> um, 
but uh, happily, I got tenure right before this. <laughs> um, so that was a, that was a good piece of timing. Tenure is magic. Tenure really is mm-hmm. to to have intellectual freedom, and it, in many cases, it, it it works really well. Very frustrating until you get it, and then um, kind of at its best, tenure really lets you do some remarkable things. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, Tufts does also have um, some elements that are pretty well suited to what I want to do. Um, so there's a piece of Tufts that's called the Tisch College of Civic Life, um, which, you know, there's a College of Arts and Sciences, there's a College of Engineering, and there's a College of Civic Life. It's pretty rare to have a university of a structural role for civics. And um, Tisch College has a number of, I would say, democracy labs within it. So there's three major labs. Um, my my group is one, and then there's IDHE, which is looking at democracy in higher education. So they're looking at college voting. And then there's Circle, which is looking at youth civic engagement. And, you know, they're, they're doing terrific work. So um, Tish has supported the labs that I founded since 2018. Yeah. So let, let's talk about balance. And I understand how busy you are and you've been working on the redistricting like crazy since the 2020 census. Um, what are the things that you choose to prioritize in your life and how do you balance between them? And, and along with that, how do you make sure you take care of yourself? And there's some moon time in there as well. <laughs> so to speak. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that is that I'm very um, bad at, but that I've given myself kind of halfway permission to be bad at is like the, the situation with my email has become really overwhelming. And I know that's true for a lot of us, um, but as I got more and more overwhelmed, there was a certain point uh, about two years ago when I felt like I was working three full-time jobs because I was doing like the math professor thing. I was directing this STS program, Science, Technology, and Society, and running this lab that involved, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also you know, increasingly doing consulting work outside of my university role. It just began to feel, you know, that there weren't enough hours in the day. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, yeah, the, the, as the workload goes up, my ability to stand top of and just generally just to be responsive um, goes down. You know, and it's funny because I can remember as a student, I was the kind of person who would just reach out to professors and try to engage with them and at other schools, just like, hey, I read this in your work and I'm really interested. Could I come visit and meet with you? And I could not understand why I would sometimes not get responses. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really, you know, eye-opening to be on the other side of that. And, and I um, uh, try to cut myself some slack about, about it. But it's definitely one of the things that feels the whole kind of moment of trying to balance all these different um, responsibilities is that um, it's, it's, it's harder to stay on top of. Um, uh, being in touch with the kind of people like, you know, students will email me out of the blue and I really try um, to to be responsive, but that, that can be hard. And that, that can be one of the things that feels worst about the whole balancing act is mm-hmm. that I don't manage to stay on top of that. Um, having said that, in terms of priorities, um, I mean, you could probably tell by the fact calling in from a high school math camp, I really love working with, um, you know, kids before they get to college. I, I obviously love college kids and grad students. By the way, mentoring grad students is one of the huge pleasures 
um, of, of my job for me. Um, it's, it's just been so rewarding. I've had some fantastic PhD students at Tufts. So grad students are terrific. Working with college students is hugely rewarding. But I try to make time to high school, middle school, and you know, even little kids when I can. Um, both because I think there are programs that are just doing kind of cool visionary things. Like I'm a big fan of Dan Zaharopal's BEAM program, Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are programs that are just thinking creatively about what um, fun math can look like. Um, but also just because I find it very rewarding. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, some, some of the outreach, so out- outreach is energizing for me. But also, you know, there are some uh, so-called lifelong education programs um, that, that I try to make time to, to speak to. I, I try to talk to different kinds of groups. I, I try to prioritize going to talk to people who might be uh, in an environment where they don't have, you know, an embarrassment of riches in terms of programming options. Um, so, like, public speaking has been a joy. Mm-hmm. Um, interdisciplinarity has been a joy. Mm-hmm. And so I actively look for ways to, to collaborate with, you know, law scholars and geographers and whoever else I can get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when it comes to balance, I would say um, we're all trying to figure that out. Nobody's solved it. <laughs> um, I, I try to think about um, you know, like when you travel a lot and give a lot of talks, um, which is something I was doing a great deal of a few years ago, it might just be a short talk that you give, but it's a lot of commitment. You have to mm-hmm. travel, you have to prepare, then you have to do this high energy thing where you give a talk and uh, it takes a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it only makes sense to do that a lot if it gives you something back. And I have yeah. really found valuable like connecting with people all over the country and sometimes in, in other countries. Um, it's the connections that come out of those talks, I think, that, that makes them really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, Lynn, when you wake up in the morning, what part of the professional day are you really looking forward to, that you really love? Well, I mean, my professional day has changed a lot over the last few years. And also COVID has changed everybody's the shape of our days, I would say. Um, so I, I'll say I don't wake up in the morning excited to open up Zoom. <laughs> um, but, you know, but it is an indispensable tool for connecting with people without having to travel. Um, I think um, the, the teaching, the mentoring, um, the, the speaking, um, I, I have tried to tailor those things to the um both the impact and the rewards so that's a vague answer but um if if there are parts of my like obligations that i find consistently difficult um i've been fortunate enough to be able to find ways to to step away from that a little bit and during that first like all zoom teaching semester at the end of the semester i went to a coffee shop on campus and one of my students was behind the counter and said, you know, I'm so-and-so from your class. And the fact that I didn't even have face recognition for a student I'd been teaching for the whole semester mm-hmm. just 
really awful. Um, <laughs> and it's contributed, you know, that plus the busy schedule of, um, of legal work for the last couple of years has contributed mm-hmm. to wanting to take some, some leave time. So I'm actually on leave um, for the coming year mm-hmm. uh, to, to sort of um, try to keep that balance where I want to keep it. I'm still hoping we get to a post-COVID normal, although it's starting to look like it could be a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, we're finding, yeah, we're finding new configurations and new arrangements and kind of new ways to, to put our obligations together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'll say this, like, so we're, we're uh, at Colby College right now in Maine, mm-hmm. and it's hot. I mean, it's hot everywhere right now. But yeah. also there was just enough like kind of COVID positivity happening at camp that were masked and one uh, more around other people. So yeah. this morning I found myself teaching in, you know, 88 degrees in a mask on a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> and I went after class and it just felt like, wow. And then I went uh, after class and I went to the bathroom and looked in the mirror and I saw I had like, war paint all over my face from like <laughs> sweaty whiteboard detritus and, and so on. So I'd say like, there's a combination of factors right now that make certain things harder than they used to be. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I think part of looking for balance in your professional life is about thinking about your range of obligations and the range of ways that you can contribute. Mm-hmm. And then like, sort of moving towards the ones where you both have an impact and get like a gratification reward. And so that's an ongoing process, I think, for all of us of balancing and rebalancing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on actively. Mm-hmm. In what uh, aspect of your life do you feel like you're a student still? Oh, wow. I'm still learning so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I, I, this year, I've always thought of myself as a little bit of an academic tourist. Um, actually, I first heard about some of the political science side of redistricting when I went to an American Political Science Association session um, because one of my friends was giving a political philosophy talk. And then one of the other talks in the session was about district shapes. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go to conferences in a lot of different fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and these days I try to co-author with people in a lot of days, but speaking of still a student, I was recently asking myself, should I go get a law degree? <laughs> I'm actually finding the legal collaborations particularly, um, just deep and fascinating. Um, and then I think in the end, I probably don't need to go get a degree, but I will probably take some classes. Um, mm-hmm. so literally still a student. That's, that's one way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also something that it's been my practice. I've been at Tufts now since 2011, so over 10 years. And I take a lot of classes. Um, professors are kind enough to let me sit in their classes. And I took a history of analytic philosophy class one mm-hmm. semester. And, you know, it's just been a lot of fun to get to be a student. So I think there's not just one area. I, I kind of construct myself as a student all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. What's nice is now I've got just enough white hair that people no longer are literally mistaking me for a student. (laughs) That's only a recent development. You might be interested in the mathematician Mary Gray. Just like you, she got interested in the applications of mathematics and then got interested. She started to do what you're doing, these sort of legal um, situations. And so then she did go back and get a law degree. 
Oh, that's awesome. It's many years ago. Yeah. She wasn't doing gerrymandering so much or democracy types of questions. She was really involved with Amnesty International. Oh, good for her. That's fantastic. So, um, yes. No, I think I'm just looking at her Wikipedia page. Yeah, I think I recognize her. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's inspiring. I mean, I, but there's so many ways to keep on being a student, right? Um, and I think one of the things that I've become really convinced by is that most people, even when they're doing interdisciplinarity, they're not really getting outside of their own discipline. <laughs> um, and so just like, even without getting extra degrees, like taking the time to read the literature in other fields, mm -hmm. just, I have found so valuable. Mm -hmm. I wanted to turn that question around and instead of asking in what aspect are you still a student, I want to ask you what advice would you give to students? And here I'm sort of thinking of college students. Yeah, I have, I have the, the great honor this spring of being the commencement speaker for the math department at UC Berkeley. Oh, nice. Yeah. They, Congratulations. Oh, thanks. That was, it was, it was fun, but also, you know, they had initially asked me to do it in 2020 and then COVID shut everything down. This was the first semester they were able to have an in-person commencement since then and be at MSRI for the semester. So I was already in Berkeley. So it was mm -hmm. perfect, mm -hmm. except not perfect because anything I would have said that in 2020 would be so different today. Um, you know, something we haven't really talked about yet is just the incredible threat to democracy that's happening right now. Yes. Um, so since I've started kind of working on this, there's just been a big transformation in the attitudes of Americans to elections, in the kind of alignment of the political parties, and in the Supreme Court. So we're, we're talking in July of 2022 when the Supreme Court has just changed the um, you know, abortion landscape. Mm -hmm. But in all the articles that I read, kind of thinking about what comes next, I just didn't see many that were realizing that the Voting Rights Act is up next. So in October of this year, the Supreme Court's going to hear a case that might end the Voting Rights Act or seriously threaten it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm right in the middle of the story, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so I'm um, like an expert in that Alabama congressional lawsuit that triggered the um, uh, the case that went up to the Supreme Court. And um, there's like shifting sands, it feels like. And we could well be looking at, you know, the, the court has also taken on another case called the Independent State Legislature's Theory um, that might take the ability to regulate federal elections away from state courts completely commissions um, at its most extreme this uh theory would lead to a situation where only state legislatures can uh regulate or monitor um federal elections and that includes drawing districting plans so there, there's that is to say there's something for me um all of that has driven me to think much more long-term about the democracy work because mm -hmm. short-term, everything seems like it might be about to blow up. And so now where um, thinking about what to say to graduating students was really difficult because I think it's a, it's a really tough time. Mm -hmm. That's like a historically difficult period. 
So I kind of agonized over this commencement speech um, for quite some time, and then finally figured out what I wanted to say, kind of the day of of the of the event. Um, and the the message that I put together for these students was one one that I thought I would have loved to hear at that age, which was um, your job is not yourself. That was the mm -hmm. said now more than ever, you're going to have many jobs and you're going to have many selves, many chances at reinvention of all kinds. And, you know, for all of its suffering and instability, one of the things that COVID has brought us is a lot more um, room for people to think about what they can ask of their job. Um, do I have to live someplace I don't want to live? Do I have to live far from my partner? Um, could I work part-time? Could I work remote? You know, people are really changing their relationships to their jobs at this time. Um, and, and so I thought that was um, an encouraging message in an uncomfortable time um, that now more than ever, you are, you have the blessing of reinvention, <laughs> um, you know, over and over as you, as you make your way through. So I think that's one thing I would say, um, when I talk to students and I work with some really phenomenal students, um, often I, I see them agonizing over a decision to make as though their first job out of college is like a completely life-defined <laughs> decision to make. Should I go to grad school or should I go to the tech? And that's it. And, you know, for example, um, and what, what I see instead is just so much more fluidity um, in the ways that we can construct what we do and, um, and where it sits. So that's, that's something that I would say to students, but something I did just say to students. <laughs> I'd like to follow up with that and ask you sort of on the flip side. So this, these are their, maybe their opportunities. I'd like to hear your thoughts on their responsibilities. What, what do you think um, our students and ourselves, what are we responsible for in this very difficult political climate? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. Um, I definitely feel like there are different ways into the question of responsibility. There's sort of um, what do you owe is one way of thinking about that. But another way of thinking about that is what's the relationship that you want to have with the systems that you're in? So um, there are ways of being very checked out and solo, and there are ways of like building community. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know that I would construct it as a obligation or a responsibility, but as a way to be in the world that's going to, for, for many people, make you happier mm -hmm. um, is to sort of think proactively about the different communities you sit in and what you want them to be like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about, I've never thought about that. What's the relationship you want to have with the systems that you're in? Mm -hmm. I also really appreciated what you said about the blessing of reinvention and the fluidity. So one of the things I find myself saying is I, I, do, I feel like an imposter sometimes because I've had one job. I'm advising students who I know the research, I think the last one was the last article I saw was these students are going to have 11 jobs on average, yeah. 11 jobs. And, you know, I've had basically the same job, although like you, I've done a lot of different things in that 
professor of mathematics Raul, but I love this word fluidity. I want to adopt that for myself. Like I want to, I like this mm-hmm. idea. Can we, um, can you tell us about an experience you had where you felt that you really belonged or a place or experience where you felt uncomfortable and that you did not belong and how you dealt with that? Um, yeah, well, I'll just on leveraging this, this math camp that I'm at, which is this like delightfully, deliriously nerdy place. <laughs> and so you walk in and like, you know, you, you have like kids dressed in like math t-shirts and sarongs, you know, <laughs> and you're like, yes, these are my people. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, some places, and this camp is just one example, but it's the one that I'm at right now. <laughs> um, some places are just really good at cultivating an inclusive kind of weird. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen that on college campuses, I've seen that here at camp. I've seen that in some, you know, um, uh, some um, I've gotten, as, as we've been discussing, I've gotten really interested in democracy. And I, one of the things that I'm interested in right now is the, the sort of town hall meeting model. Mm-hmm. Um, and one in which people, which is a very New England model, I'm sure it exists elsewhere as well. One in which people can come together and like disagree and be curmudgeonly and then like leave feeling like they aired what they had to say. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm thinking a lot about inclusive environments. And what it takes to to make a space that feels good for the people who are in it, um, and I, I see like inspiring examples in all kinds of places, um, and then certainly, obviously, lots of counterexamples. <laughs> well, just to say, like we we all know that that um, sometimes math sub communities will be really competitive, mm-hmm. and really um, about kind of like showing off and showing up others and um you know i think for some people that's their happy place yeah <laughs> uh, but for me that doesn't that doesn't feel great and it, it took me a while to realize that that you vote with your feet which is a little bit what i was saying before about thinking about building the kind of community that you want to be in mm-hmm. like you, you realize at a certain point that you have a lot of control you know not unlimited control there's some some things you have to show up for in life right do have a lot of control of kind of where your center of gravity is. And um, I'll, I'll tell you that um, at, at some point in the middle of my like years as a postdoc, I kind of slightly changed the kind of problems that I was working on, partly to change the kind of conferences I'd be going to. <laughs> right. And, and that's, that's about realizing you just have one life. And you want to spend it in communities that feel good. So, mm-hmm. you know, on the responsibility side, you should work to make those communities better. Mm-hmm. And also on the self-care side, you should ones that make you uh, happy to go to work. Mm-hmm. I like that. Rapid fire? We are. Okay, so since I already inadvertently asked the first one, I'm going to start with the second one. <laughs> which is, what's your go-to song to energize you? What's my go-to song to energize me? Um, I have a few that I love. Okay, there's there's a wonderful, ridiculous song called Danger High Voltage. Always a winner, especially if you can accompany it with the ridiculous video. Always, always will leave you feeling better than you did when you came. 
Good. Um, where is a place that you really enjoy? Um, wow, there's a lot. Um, if I think about a lot of my favorite places in the world, many of them sell coffee. <laughs> so no. yes like there's there's just some coffee shops that really feel like home and actually when I go to a new place that I'm going to spend some time um that is one thing I take seriously is to like find my coffee spots um when I was in Berkeley for the last semester I used to live in Berkeley but I haven't been back in a while for, for long so when I was here for the there for the past semester um, my best friend and I did a tour where we attempted to go to every coffee shop in Berkeley and Oakland over the course of the semester. I don't think we got to them all, but we did pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So that, what's nice about coffee shops is so many things like they, they feed you the nectar of the gods in coffee form, but also, you know, there's spaces that are made for use by all kinds of people who want to be near, but not necessarily with um, all kinds of strangers. Mm -hmm. There's something really beautiful about the kind of community that exists in a place where you've chosen to be like proximal to folks that you're not necessarily interacting with directly. So I, I really like that. Have you been to the city of Vienna? To where? To the city of Vienna. They have a very strong coffee house culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, Vienna has a good one. Paris is actually an interesting one. I'm, um, you know, I have my, my father's from Paris. My parents met there, left family out there. I spent a fair amount of time in Paris. It doesn't have a great cafe culture of the kind that I'm talking about, the kind where you can just sort of nurse a cup of coffee for a long time and people watch and, and so on. But I have found a few spots. So I think <laughs> like, this is definitely my, my protocol when I'm like getting comfortable in a place. <laughs> What's on your desk that would surprise us? What, um, well, right now I'm in a rando college dorm and what's on my <laughs> desk is a large supply of COVID tests. <laughs> no, that's not the, the most fun answer in the world. But let's think about my desk desk. What's on my desk that would surprise you? Um, I've gotten pretty good at working anywhere, you know, hence the coffee shop thing. Um, but Oh, I have a cool thing on my desk at uh, at Tufts, which is a real antique calculator from the 1920s. So it's it's like it has like gears and a, a little like wands that you use to turn the gears and and add with it's like in an actual um, kind of physical way. Uh-huh. And it was um, it was my great aunt's when she was like doing secretarial, <laughs> I guess in the 30s. Um, so, so that, you know, I'm a history of math buff. We haven't really talked about that much, but I'm very interested in, um, in technologies, but also in media of communication and thinking. Um, and so I, I love the idea of objects that help you think. (laughs) That's cool. And finally, what would you say to a person, a student who is considering pursuing mathematics? as a profession? I still think it's a great thing to do. Um, but I think that what I would really want to like arm a student with who's thinking about going down that path is um, what we've just been discussing, these ideas of community, this idea that there's not community and that you have to find it and you have to build it, right? And I, I think that can be really importantly 
self-protective in, you know, what can be a, a kind of rough road. Um, also, I think one of the important things about doing math is, um, you, you know, you can be a person who just thinks about one problem for your whole career. Like that can be a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But also one of, for me, one of the pleasures just of pure math is, is making connections and learning new things. So this idea that you're, um, that, that we kind of all know when we go into math, but the idea that you might get to sort of reinvent your field, um, that is to, to shift what you're thinking about, to bring in new ideas um, and, and new collaborations. The, the idea, in other words, that math is like uh, evolving, broad, and fundamentally social. Um, so these are, these are things that I would kind of talk about when I talk to, to students about thinking this might be a career. <laughs> Wonderful. Have you ever thought about, when you were just answering that question, I just thought about what you said about your mom and how your mom moved, you know, was trained in psychology, earned a PhD in computer science, but ended up as an economist. And then um, I was trying in my notes to find your quote about when, when, she, when there wasn't something for her to do, she just started her own, figured out how to do it. It seems to me like you're a really interesting reflection of that. You've stayed mm-hmm. within mathematics, sort of, <laughs> but you've yeah. really blurred those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I think that's, I've, I've kind of looked for ways to do that without leaving math. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worth saying people ask me, especially people who've known me for a while since before I started doing democracy work, they'll ask me, are you still doing math? <laughs> And I mean, for me, I'm like, of course I am because I'm always going to be doing math in some ways. But on a literal level, if that question means, are you still thinking about Newton groups? Then the answer is also yes, right? <laughs> so <laughs> like, I, I have been trying to stretch the ways that I can do both ends, that I can keep thinking about the things that I love and, and also put a lot of energy into, into new things. So mm-hmm. thank you. I appreciate that comment. <laughs> Well, I've really enjoyed our time together, Moon. This this is great, having a good conversation and getting to know you a little better. It's great talking to you. And I hope we get a chance to see each other in person soon. Oh, I know. Me too. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time. Okay, I'll take off. Bye. See you both soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation with Moon. She's such a nice person and got so much energy and, and enthusiasm for what she does. What did you take away from this, Stella? Well, I really loved her broad view of the discipline and how a speaker to her class at Tufts sort of gave her students a charge in saying, you people who are thinking about this, the class was on uh, mathematics and democracy. We need you. But Moon heard that and she sort of shifted her interests and that has led to, um, I would say, a much richer professional experience for her. I love the way she talked about community, about both aspects of it, the responsibility of building the kind of community mm-hmm. you want to be in and mm-hmm. your responsibility to find the kind of community that you want to be in and mm-hmm. how she changed the problems she focused on so that she could be with people that built her up. Mm-hmm. Uh, my all-time favorite quote, though, was when she talked about how a lot of her favorite places in the world, many of them serve coffee. <laughs> and she just talked about how strangers come together and they want to be near each other in proximity, but not necessarily with each other. I never thought about a coffee shop in that way. Mm-hmm. And in some, some ways that's sort of related to community. 
Mm-hmm. And I also loved her point about her mom, how her mom, in a way, she didn't use the word role model, but her mom laid out a path where you could study psychology, earn a PhD in computer science, then focus your career on being economist in all kinds of different situations. Because Moon has done something similar to that. So mm-hmm. she leaves mm-hmm. a lot of room mm-hmm. or creates a lot of space for you to think about a very broad professional experience of mathematics. Mm-hmm. I did really like how she talked about, you know, you can reinvent yourself. And, it, and if the situation isn't right, you can change the situation. Um, very inspiring. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. So I am looking forward to meeting her in person, as she said at the end. Mm-hmm. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, we'll be counting you in. Bye-bye. Count Me In with Ellen Deanna is produced by the talented Aiden Martin. Music created by Casey Fenster. And podcast image by Victoria Robinson. <laughs>